Hopefully you have your Bibles with you. You can go to Ephesians chapter 5. As always, though, if you don't, there should be a Bible there in front of you, in the pew rack in front of you. You can take that out. If you don't own a Bible, that one can be yours. You can take it home with you if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33 will be our, our focus this morning. As you turn there, many of you maybe have heard, but our longtime pastor who pastored here in the 80s and the 90s and maybe a little in the 2000s, Pastor Damon Patterson, he passed away this past week. They had his funeral this past week as well. I know many of you are very thankful for his ministry here at the church for those many years. I know I am. Uh, He was the one who baptized me and I've always looked up to him greatly. And so please be praying for his family and his church family uh, down there in Tennessee. But I just wanted to mention that to you. I'm sure many of you saw that. Maybe some of you didn't know, so I wanted to mention it. We continue this morning looking at marriage according to God's Word, uh, trying to interpret what God has for us there in Ephesians chapter 5 for us. And today our focus shifts from the role of wives to the role of husbands in that relationship, in that marriage bond, in that marriage covenant that we come in together But as you can tell, as we've been going through Ephesians, at least I hope that you can tell this, it all builds on each other. And it's important to know that. I mean, what we're doing is we're kind of diving deep and and we're looking at these little sections, even sometimes just an individual word. And sometimes we can get distracted from the greater purpose of the chapter or even the book, Ephesians as a whole. I don't want us to get lost in the weeds, but to remember what's been going on in Ephesians, all that God has done for us through Christ. And if that is true, then how is that going to start to play out in our lives? And we took that that as, as a church family, that we're a body together. We all serve a purpose in that, that we're supposed to submit to each other. And then naturally, the next relationship that Paul got to is, is marriage. And so this is our third week looking at marriage. Next week, we'll be focusing on children and parents uh, together. And then today, specifically, like I said, with with husbands, but all of this builds on top of each other. Remember, you cannot have a marriage according to Ephesians 5 and not be spirit-filled, not be a Christian, not be saved by God's grace. It just simply can't be done. This is what happens as a result of being spirit-filled. We now live this way because we are are spirit-filled. That's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about when I say it all builds on, on each other. And then also when we look at it more specifically within this marriage relationship, I think we all would, uh, would agree that marriage is much easier when wives fulfill their role and when husbands fulfill their role. It's very difficult, though, when one of us get out of line or both at the same time. Then we kind of struggle with that, and we see the difficulty within that. <clears throat> but yet we cannot sit here and make excuses this morning or maybe why we are not fulfilling our role within our marriage. And like I said specifically this morning to husbands. So look at beginning in verse 25, what Paul has to say as we continue on and finish this chapter out. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to approach this passage the same way we did last week with the wives. Wives were called, if you remember, to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. But then it said, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church's body, is himself his Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. And so we looked at, well, how does the church then submit to Christ if that's how wives are supposed to submit to their husbands? And we're going to do the same this morning in this section. If husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, well, then the question that needs to be answered, that we need to grasp and really understand is, how does Christ love the church? What does that look like? What does this love look like? Well, I think there's some words that are applicable here. The first word that I want to use is fully, that he loves the church fully. We've already looked at this in in Ephesians, but in Ephesians chapter 1, I want to remind us of what it says beginning in verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When I say the word fully, what I'm talking about there is that Jesus is fully committed to the church. A hundred percent. All these other words that we'll be talking about fall under this. Jesus' love is for the church. And oftentimes, the Bible will talk about the church as the bride of Christ, that we are his bride, and he loves his bride, so much so that Jesus was willing to give everything for the church. And I I want to remind you this morning, and I need reminded of this quite often, that the church actually is the plan of God and the kingdom of God. That we are now the body of Christ. We get to go about doing the work that God has for us. And so we are plan A. And there is no plan B. That's how fully committed Jesus is to his bride, the church. There's other strategies at times that people will put out there, but these are false strategies. The church is Christ, and Jesus is fully committed to his church. It's interesting how it says in Ephesians, the church is the fullness of Jesus who fills all 
in all. I don't know how much more could be said about how fully committed Jesus is to the church when we see and understand that statement. But the next word that I think is important here, as we look at this word love that is used in our passage in Ephesians 5, is Christ loves the church selflessly. I'm sure if you've been in church at all, you know that there are different words for love in the Greek language. And this word specifically is the agape love. And we talked about this some last week, and it's hard to not keep going to this passage over and over again. But when we talk about the love that Christ has for us, his church, and it being selfless, it's hard not to go to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. I almost felt guilty this week saying, gosh, I'm going to read this again, but I don't feel guilty about it. I think it's something we should know and have memorized even. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus selflessly gave of himself, obeyed the Father, and in doing this, he showed his great love that he had for us. The church, his bride. Again, this word love is the word agape. And when you hear the word agape love, it is a, it's a love that is never needing. It's always giving. It, it is a selfless love. That, that's what's being used here. Jesus loves the church for its betterment. Jesus loves the church for its salvation for its justification, for for its glorification. It's a love beyond feelings necessarily. It's a love beyond attraction. It's a love beyond a a mutual like or understanding. It is 100% a selfless love that Jesus shows to the church. Remember, Scripture tells us that he loved us first. When you were in your sin, Christ loved you. And saved you. And so it's completely selfless. Well, the next word kind of goes with this, obviously, again. But Christ loves the church sacrificially. Right? Sacrificially. Not just financially or anything like that, but sacrificially in himself. Jesus gave himself up for the church. That's what it says there in Ephesians 5. He gave himself for the church. He died on the cross for the church. For his bride, the body of Christ, what great act of love, what what greater act of love could there ever be? You know, I've I've heard it said before that, you know, I've heard some people say, man, it'd be be easier just to die for somebody than some of the other things that they ask for. Maybe that could be true in a sense, I guess, but it wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus gave up everything for you. If you're a Christian this morning, he laid it all aside. And so then he comes to this earth, as Pastor Spencer was saying, as the God man, but not sitting there declaring that all is his and that he is on the throne and he's going to have all these things and all these servants. Now, we we don't see any of that. He completely empties himself to the point to where he would say, I don't even have a home. I don't even have a place to to lay my head. I am here to serve. And so he emptied himself 
completely. And in the end, we see his willingness to die. Why? For us, for the church. This is the great love that he has for us. But it doesn't just say this. It also says that he, he cleanses the church. And so Jesus didn't just die, but through his death, Scripture tells us that he, he cleanses us of our sins. He, he washes our sins away by his blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus' death on the cross was very purposeful. Not just proving that he loves us, but also granting for us forgiveness of sin. Granting for us the ability to be righteous in him. So that when the Father looks upon us as Christians, he doesn't see Tim and all of my grandeur or my glory or even worse, in all my sin. He sees his son, Jesus. He sees the blood of Christ that washes away my sin. And so yes, Jesus dies sacrificially, but, it, but, he, but he cleanses us in his death. And this cleansing, according to Scripture, is a one-time thing. It says this in Hebrews 9, again, uh, verse 26, the second half of verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You and I as Christians, us together as the body of Christ, or as the bride of Christ, are made completely clean and pure and presentable because he has made us that way. His love for us has caused us then to be that way. But verse 29 doesn't just talk about cleansing, but it says cleanses and nourishes her. That Jesus nourishes his bride, the church, and he does this how? Through the word. He does it through, through God's word. John 6, 51, Jesus would say, I am the living bread that come down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The word of God is what, what fills us and what makes us. So you remember, you remember in, the, in the desert when Jesus got led away and Satan was trying to, to tempt him and lead him to sin in Matthew chapter 4 there. Right? Satan is saying these different things to Jesus. It says, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answers in an interesting way. He says, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is how we are nourished by our Savior. He nourishes us through the word of God. And this is a great gift that God has given us in Jesus, that we can know the word, that the word can dwell in our hearts richly, that our eyes can be open to the truth to, to understand the word of God. Ephesians 1, 7 through 9 speaks of this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. How? In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You, as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ, you who's been saved by God's grace, you understand the mystery. Why? Because Christ has lavished that on you. 
He's given you that ability and that understanding to know the truth of his word, to know that he is the way, the truth, and the life, to know that he's the only one that can lead you to the Father. Jesus has lavished that on you. And why does he do that? Because he nourishes you. And that is the nourishment that we so desperately need. But it also says in verse 29, we're cleansed, we're nourished, but also that Jesus cherishes his bride. When you see this word cherishing here, it's kind of like the idea of, of heartwarming. Jesus loves us in a way that is heartwarming, and it's always evident that he loves us in this way, where we know that we are his and that he isn't ashamed of us, that he, that he cares about us and he loves us, and he actually cherishes us, his bride. He's cleansed you. He's made you whole. And now he takes delight in you. He delights that you are his. There's no, there's no shame in that for him. To say, yes, this is my bride. And Paul goes on in, in, this, in this glory, in this nourishing, in this cherishing, and in this cleansing. Paul talks about then how Christ presents his bride. Look what it says in verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself, how? In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You think about that word splendor. Royal imagery probably comes to your mind. I know that's what comes to my mind. Just bursting forth out of his path, the, the splendor that he's put on his bride, the fact that we are his queen, and he, he treats us this way. He, he treats us like this, with a, with a great love for his bride. Revelation is full of imagery of this. Revelation 19, verse 6 through 8, says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, <clears throat> like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Jesus, Jesus makes sure that his bride is presented to himself holy and without blemish. See, in today's day and age, when weddings happen, the bride, or the bride's parents, or whoever it might be, pays a lot of money for that bride to look good. A lot of money. And a lot of brides will take a lot of time to make sure that they look good on that day. They hire professionals to do their hair. Some hire professionals to do their makeup. They fancy themselves up. Now, I would like to think that the reason they're fancying themselves up is so that when they present themselves for the first time, they're pretty in a second husband is going to see and be wowed. Now, I don't know if that's always the case. I think they care more about the crowd than the guy standing in the front. But they do a lot of work, a lot of work. And I would dare say, in almost all cases, maybe not every single one, but in almost all cases, that husband had nothing to do with how that bride looks. Nothing. He didn't do her hair. He didn't pick out the dress. 
He didn't do her makeup. He didn't do anything. She did all the work. Now this is very different than our relationship with, with Jesus. He's done all the work. He's taken you in all your unpresentableness, all of your ugliness, all of your sin, all of your struggles, all of your strife. And what Jesus has done for you as part of his church, as part of his bride, is he has made you pure, holy, and blameless, and completely presentable to be in his presence, to be able to be with him. He did all of that work that we simply could not do. And so Jesus loves us in a way that cleanses us, that saves us. He loves us fully and no one else. And he delights in us. So that leads us to the question, well then how do husbands then love their wives? Because husbands, we are supposed to love our wives as Christ loves the church. So what is our task? Well, let's go through these words again real quickly. Number one, you should love your wife fully. Our commitment as husbands, your commitment as a husband is to your wife and to her alone. There is no other person, no other thing on this planet that should ever get this type of commitment from you. Your wife alone deserves this commitment. And questions really do need to be asked, husbands, is does your wife have this commitment or do other things get this commitment? Questions concerning work, questions concerning your friends, questions concerning your hobbies, your children, your participation at church, whatever it may be. Do other things in your life get the commitment that your wife alone deserves? And you can only answer that question. I cannot answer that for you. But when we come together in covenant under God to our wife, we are committing to her in a way where the two have become one flesh. It's not said of that of anything else. Only that relationship gets that type of commitment. And so just as we are Christ's alone, she is yours alone. And you are hers alone. And so we love our wives fully. Second word, though, was selflessly. That whole agape love thing. It's so interesting that Paul uses this word for love, agape love. Most of us, probably, our minds would go to eros love. Erotic love, a sensual love, a love of, right, this, this connection. We would think about that maybe within a marriage relationship. Or maybe your mind goes to filial love, which is an emotionally connected love. Nothing wrong with either of those types of love. But that's not what Paul specifically uses in talking about the love of a marriage when it comes to how the husband loves the wife. Instead, he uses a love of selflessness. Alistair Begg, he's a pastor that I really enjoy listening to and reading. He says this way, he says, we observe that he does not use the word eros, which we might characterize as being all take. Nor did he use the word filio, which we might characterize as being give and take. But he actually used the word agape, which is faithfully to be that of all giving. And so we note that what is issued here to the husbands is a call to self-giving devotion. 
To borrow a phrase from the late President Kennedy, ask not what your wife can do for you, but ask what you can do for your wife. That is the whole impetus of agape love here. I like, I like him because he, he makes things simple for me. That's why I like to read and quote him at times. But this is the love, husbands, that you are called to to your wife. A selfless love, even when it's not given back. Even when you might feel like she doesn't really deserve it. That's not part of what you signed. You will love her no matter what, selflessly, in all things. But we also know that Jesus loved the church sacrificially. Now I must say this. Remember last week I told you how we can push analogies too far. Husbands, you cannot save your wife. You're not Jesus. You can't make sure she's forgiven of her sin. You cannot force her into this. You can't even really protect her much from that. You can point her to Christ and you need to do that. But yet there still are sacrifices that we can make in order to love our wives well. Again, you can't die like Jesus did, but we can live sacrificially for her, to sacrifice for her needs, to be, to be willing to sacrifice for her desires, her care before our care. And so this might mean that you sacrifice time, might mean money, dreams, whatever it could be, but we do it for her good and for her care because that's how we are called to love. Now I need to take a side note here and talk to wives. Wives, I want to urge you to not take advantage of this because I see it all the time. I see wives take advantage of this, good, God-honoring men who are not perfect, they're not perfect by any means, but their wives will take advantage of this first to make sure their husband never has any fun outside of her. That never gets to see the light of day outside of her. And they'll say, yeah, but you're supposed to sacrifice for me. You're supposed to be with me. And you remember how I said this, is a, this really is a two-sided thing. I, I just want to warn you of that. I've seen many a good men absolutely crushed by this. They do sacrifice. They do strive to love selflessly. But their wives kind of bombard them all the time, always trying to make them feel guilty for every little thing in the world. So that's just a little side note to wives to try to help your husband in this area. But husbands, we must be willing to sacrifice for our wives. Then the Bible went on to say that Jesus cleansed his bride. Only Jesus does this. Only Jesus can cleanse your wife. You are not able to forgive the sins of your wife. You cannot free her from her grip of sin, from the grip that holds her down. But you can lead her to the one who does. You can do everything in your power to not lead her to sin. You can do everything in your power, husbands, to be an example for her, to point her to Christ daily. You can pray for her and petition the Father to pour his grace out on her. This is what we are called to do in the cleansing portion. I, again, I, I can't cleanse them. You cannot cleanse them of their sin. Only Jesus does this. But we should be daily pointing them to Christ, reminding them of the love that Jesus has for them and how he sets them free from sin, from shame, and from guilt. And so that's what leads to the next thing, through nourishing. 
Well, how do we do this? How do we, how do we make sure that our wives are nourished? If Christ does this for the church, how do I do this for my wife? Well, yeah, some people might take this passage and say, well, I go to work and make money so that we can have food on the table. That might be a part of it. I don't want to push that aside by any means. But I think what's more important here is are you a husband who is always pointing your wife to the word of God? Always letting her know what should be her first priority in her life, and it's not you, it's Jesus. Pointing her to this truth. Are you reading it? Are you memorizing it? Are you speaking about the word of God often in your home? What do you talk about more in your home, husbands? Politics or the Bible? What do you quote more often? Your favorite news anchor or your favorite Bible verses? I can go the same route. What do I quote more, some sports person or the Bible? I need to be, as a husband, always encouraging, and notice what I said, encouraging my wife with the word. Not using it as a battering ram, not trying to beat her into submission with it, because again, I can't cleanse her, I can't save her, but showing her the great glorious truths of the word of God and how much Christ really loves her. This is the nourishing that she needs And so, husbands, we must be faithful to live this word out where our wives see us being nourished by the word and helping them to realize, and we love them so much, we want you to be nourished by this word. And so making sure our home is centered on the word of God and nothing else. And now remember, I told you, you gotta be careful with churches. All churches will say they are centered on the word of God, but start watching their practice. Start watching worship service. Start seeing how they are designed and how they operate, and you become, it becomes evident really quick what they're centered on. What really is their strategy? What really their hope is? It's the same way in our homes. What is our strategy? What is our hope for a good home? It needs to be centered on the word of God and nothing else. In order to lead with wisdom, it must be through the word of God. And we're going to look at that tonight as we look at the attributes of God. We're on the wisdom of God. He is the source of all wisdom, and so we can't do it any other way. And so we must be careful with that. Well, Jesus also cherishes his bride, and so we must cherish our wives. Sometimes I think this might be the most difficult one in all of this. Does your wife feel cherished by you? Does she really feel like she's the most important person Does she feel like she's the most important issue, topic, thing, whatever it is in your life? Does she get that sense in her relationship with you that you really care and love her? Now, I think this is a conversation you guys need to have. I found in my relationship that there are times I think I'm doing an awesome job at that. And I find out I'm not. But she's just been quiet. And it's led to hardship or the same way with me. She might think she's doing a great job. And finally it comes out, do you like me? 
Like, do you even like me? I know we sleep in the same bed together. We're, we're going, you know, on the, the same route. We have these kids and we're doing this and that. I just got a quick question. Do you even like me? You laugh. I dare say you have thought of this in your marriage if you've been married very long. And husbands, I dare you to ask that question to your wife sometime this week. Do you think I like you? Not love, because there's times we love things that we hate, okay? I'm not talking about that. Do you think that I like you, that I cherish you, that I love being with you, that there's no other person in this world that has the same commitment for me than you? Do you feel that way in our relationship? And let your wife be honest with you. And I think that will be a good sign of how well we're loving our wives as Christ loves the church. Because no real Christian could ever look at Jesus and say, I doubt you love me. I doubt it's real. You need to do a little more to prove it. No, because he gave everything. His whole commitment is for us, his church. And so, guys, we need to make sure that there's no doubt in our wives' minds she is ours. That we love them with everything that we have. The Song of Solomon keeps coming in my mind. This book of the Bible, poetry in the Old Testament. But in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, it says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. She says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. In the Song of Solomon, this wife had no doubt in her mind. Her husband loved her. Loved her with everything that he had at all times. There's something else that Jesus did. It says that Jesus presents his bride to himself. So how do we do that? How, what does that mean for us as husbands? There's only one way that you can present your wife, and that's to Jesus. As I've been saying, you cannot make her holy. You cannot sanctify her. Now listen, I've seen some husbands try this, just like I've seen some parents try this. They've tried very hard to make their kids holy, and what they realize is they can't. You can make all the rules you want. You can beat them as much as you want. You can ground them as much as you want. You cannot make that kid holy. You cannot deal with the sin in his heart. You just simply can't do it. You might curb their behavior. You're going to make them really good sinners is what you're going to do. You can make them really good at hiding stuff. And I've seen husbands try this with their wives. They try to rule with dominion and power in their house. And they set up strategies. And they, this is going to work. And i got to tell you, you can't do that. Just like you did not present your wife to yourself on your wedding day and fancy her up. You cannot present your wives like Jesus does. All you can do is point them to Jesus often. Yes, we need to be our wives' first loves. We, we need to love them. They, they need to love us back. But Jesus needs to be the true first love of your relationship. Husbands, your love for Christ 
your wife will see that and reminding her that her love for Christ is more important even than her love for you. Can't remember which old preacher it was. I'm sure Spencer will yell at me after. He'll say exactly who it is. But He used to have a little thing for his wife to say every night. And, he, and it was basically what I just was saying. Yes, my husband's important to me, but Jesus is so much more important to me. And he did that because he said, one day I'll be gone. I'll be dead. I'm going to die. But Jesus is with you forever and always. And he wanted his wife to love the Lord with all her heart, with all her soul, and with all her mind, with all her strength. Husbands, this is what we do for our wives. We love them in this way that we're always pointing them to Christ. We, we love them in a way that is, that is selfless. That it's not about what I get, it's not about what I think I might get in return. I love her because I committed to her. And the Bible tells me I need to love my wife just like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. That's the task that we have for us as husbands. Now let me encourage you with this though. Just like wives, you will never submit to your husband like you should. Husbands, you're never gonna love your wife this good. You're not Christ. You're gonna fall short. You're gonna think of yourself probably often. Probably before, I had wives last week tell me, I, I failed to submit before you said amen walking out of here. We're gonna do the same thing. But before we're done here, we, we are going to fail. But remember, Remember I talked about how we're looking at a very small part. Don't forget the big picture of Ephesians. We do our best to love each other this way in that marital bond. Why? Because Christ has loved us, has filled us with the Spirit, and we do it to show the world the truth of the gospel. But we're, we're not the gospel. He is. Jesus has died for us in our place and in our stead. And so you're not going to be perfect, husbands. Wives, you are not going to be perfect either. But we both serve the one who is. We've both been saved by the one who could save us. And so we continue to strive to live this way because of what he has done for us. And I promise you that as you guys try to do that, to, do that together, over the years you will see God work in your life and in your family's lives and even having other people recognize this and notice this because God is faithful and true to his word. I know this stands in contrast to a lot, like I've been saying, of what society teaches about marriage and that relationship. But as a church, we can never fall away from the truth of what God gives us here in Ephesians chapter five for the marital relationship and yes, it's difficult. And yes, I have no doubt that as I've been talking today, husbands, if you're like me, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I sat by her today because I'm sweating. I'm so bad at this. Right? I, I get that. I understand that. Maybe wives, last week was the same for you. Like, oh my gosh, I'm just struggling at this. Yes, I'm sure we all do. But we keep, we keep pushing forward and striving to honor Christ, because we know the love that he has for me is not based on how much I love my wife. 
The love that he has for my wife isn't based on how much she submits and cares for me. No, remember what I said. He loves me because he chose to love me. Even while I was a sinner, running from him, he chose to love me and he promised to never leave me and never forsake me. So in our marriage relationships, I hope that we will hold to that truth and continue fighting for what we see in Ephesians 5 together. Because as I said, now I'll close with this. A great church is made up of great families. It's very hard to have a great church and not have great families strong in this. And so if our church is going to grow, if our church is going to grow in the Lord, I dare say it's going to start in your homes together. And as we do that, we will see our worship impacted. We will see our outreach impacted. We will see our joy, our peace, our happiness impacted. As a church family, as we strive our best by the grace of God to love our wives and our husbands in this way. Let's bow together. Let's pray. We're going to close with a song like we do each week. Pray together. God, we have looked through your word in Ephesians chapter 5, and I think it's pretty clear what you've called us to in this relationship of, of marriage. And it's even clearer, I think, how important it is. God, it's something that you've established. Before sin, you established marriage within creation. It's, it's your design. It's something for the betterment of society, betterment for the church. As Paul says, it's a mystery that you are speaking of Christ and the church and the gospel. And so, God, I, I pray that marriage would be something that Christians would continue to fight for, that we would value it, that we would hold it up as you do in your word over and over again. God, help us within our relationships as husbands to love our wives as you call us to. God, that's a big standard to love anything or anybody as much as Christ loves the church. And God, I know as a husband, when I think of that, the weight of it is extremely heavy. Impossible, in fact. Seems like a task that just simply cannot be done, but yet... It is something you've called us husbands to do. And so I pray that it would be something we would take seriously. God, I have no doubt that there are men listening to me now who when they get home or in the car, they need to seek forgiveness from their wives for the sins that they've committed and not loving her selflessly or not being willing to sacrifice their dreams and their pride, whatever it might be, for the betterment of their spouse. God, I know that that could be a tough conversation. God, as a husband, we need to have our desire to be that our wife knows that we cherish her, that we love her, that we 
care for her, that we know she's the one that God has given us to become one flesh with, united in hopes and aims and sentiments, goals. So God, there are men here this morning who've been married for a year or less. There's other men who've been married here this morning 60 years or even more. The goal should be the same for all of us, to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. And God, I pray that you would help the men in here to lead their family well, to remember that the, the one thing that nourishes our families, it's not the, the money we make that can buy them food or clothes, but what truly nourishes our family is your word. And so help us to be men of your word, to know it, to share it with our wives, with our kids. Help our homes to be centered on Christ. Your word. And God, I pray that you would work within our marriages. That when society tries to push against it to say this is old, this is antiquated, this doesn't need to be, help us to be faithful to stand up for the truth of your word to say, no, God has established marriage. There's a special covenant happening there, more so than we even think because it is a mystery of Christ's love for the church. And so God, help us in those relationships. God, as we sing this last song now, help us to worship you in it the best that we can, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.